You're listening to New Voices in Philosophy, a production of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy project. This podcast is sponsored by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada and partner institutions. I'm Olivia Branscombe. And I'm Haley Brennan. Hey, my name is Delitzo Rue. I am the Assistant Professor of Black Political Thought at Queen University. My general research area is around the intellectual history of African philosophy. So, Delitzo, I actually want to start with a quote of yours. Um, this is from a blog post you wrote for Project Vox's Revealing Voices series. The blog post is about the importance of mentorship and the impact of mentors on your philosophical career. You ended this post with what I found to be a really powerful and, and beautiful statement. Um, so if you don't mind me reading that out loud, you say, I share these anecdotes to say that a philosopher does not exist in a vacuum, but rather in networks and communities of people who shape who they become. In my research, and I'm, I'm still quoting you here, this means when researching black thinkers, I must think about the black communities that nurtured their gifts and how they aspired to be accountable to these communities in their philosophical inquiries. After all, we are not only a reflection of our habits, but also the influence of others on our lives. In other words, the task of revealing a voice is not only about appreciating its concerto, but also the orchestra it exists in and the story of the human condition they share on center stage. So that's the end of the quote. Um, like I said, I found this to be very beautiful uh, and moving, but, but also a striking way of thinking about how to do philosophy. Um, so I'd love to kick off our conversation by asking you just to speak about this way of thinking about philosophy and especially how it takes shape in your research. Uh, yeah, for a minute, I was like, did I write that? Um, <laughs> it's always weird to hear your own words read back to you, right? Like, this <laughs> Wait a minute, out of body experience. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, I, as I was trying to intimate in the piece, right, one of the privileges I've had is been fortunate being in a space with other people who have been very generous in sharing how they've gotten to be where they're at. And I found that to be tried and true for most of people I met in the real world and even how we all become who we are, right? We're shaped by the ways in which people influence us. I mean, you know, it's interesting that philosophers tend to divorce that way of thinking from doing research when one can even just look at like Plato's dialogues, right? Like Socrates and everybody are in conversation constantly with other people, right? Um, so a lot of this is really a question about methodologies, the way in which, you know, sometimes we tend to valorize one thinker as the thinker who said X, but never as though the person was in conversation with other people in that millennial time. And particularly, you know, when doing philosophical work and using that kind of tradition, it matters in the ways in which we don't just chop up one thinker, but think seriously about the genealogies and people that they're constantly in conversation with that help create a more expansive view of a particular figure's life. Um, and, you know, for better or worse, I mean, this is a constant thing for all of us. People pull into us as much as we pull into them. So, so this was really an ode to so many people who influenced me um, just as a person, even before I think of myself as a philosopher, but then also how that extends into my actual research. So this is a really interesting account of how you kind of approach philosophy. Um, I'm curious as well about how this approach manifests or unfolds in your writing uh, and in your research. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, you know, and, and some of this disposition may have to just be my own upbringing, being raised and born and raised in Zambia, and there's very typical African traditions where you're constantly, you know, deferring to your elders and reverence for people older than you. Uh, I think that is extended to how I think about philosophers, right? I'm constantly thinking about 
what does it mean to be in space with elder people, people who are your peers, and how that informs you. So, so you know, in philosophy, we would call this genealogy. I mean, it's no different from what somebody like Nietzsche was trying to posit, right? But for me, in my liberty as somebody born and raised in Africa and Zambia and moving to a diaspora, those genealogies matter, right? Tracing the ways in which my own heritage influenced me in the new context of the diaspora and what it means for me to, to connect with black thinkers. So, you know, in the academic sense, we call this like the African continuity, right? The way in which African culture continues to the new world and the practices that emerge from that. And so, so one, being born and raised in Africa and Zambia, then moving to the North American experience, right? Finding similarities and similarities with African descendant people has then been a point of emphasis in my own research, right? To constantly think about the ways, for better or worse, both my liberty, but also how this is feeling in the scholarship, right? This continuation about the African traditions brought into the new world. Can you give me some particulars of, of this research and the work you're, you're doing right now? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So uh, so right now I'm in the process, I've got two projects working on. I'm, I'm in the process of revising my dissertation. Uh, my dissertation was really trying to make a case that there are specific genealogies in Africana philosophy that are radically different from the Western canon's conception of slavery and even ending slavery that haven't really been given merit as their own tradition. So students can learn everybody from Aristotle to Hegel's view of slavery, but we can't recite the African thinkers from the continent of Africa to the New World and their own views about slavery and ending slavery. So my work is sort of reclaiming this genealogy and making a case for necessity and insistence on this. Right? So, for example, right now I'm working through uh, biblical geneal- genealogies and thinking through covenant systems and how they're essential to African critiques about slavery. So for most of us, say, in the modern period, we look at the context of the social contract and its emergency around civil society. When you look and think through the 17th and 18th century black thinkers, what appears there are biblical covenants. So you have a different tradition wrestling with different things, right, between the state of nature and how society comes about in Europe. In the context of North America, it's the biblical covenant and this idea that God intends for black people to be slaves. And you see that there's a concerted effort for black thinkers to really create a biblical interpretation and a legal interpretation of the Bible and the Constitution, which is then going to be radically different than just starting with the social contract theory. And can you give me some names of the figures you're you're looking at? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, one of my favorite thinkers in that time period is Corriano, right? The name Friedman, who ends up in in London and he's writing religiously, right? He has critiques of Adam Smith, he has critiques, you know, of Dave Hume. Um, so I'm working through that his work, which is really important um, the critique of Ford. Jacob Capitan has been somebody's text who's just been reprinted. He was uh, another Ghanaian guy who ends up in a death experience. So before Kierkegaard and them are writing about these Christian ethos, right, you get this Ghanaian think of really wrestling with Christianity and slavery. I'm reading more recently another figure, early 18th century black Christian, who ends up in Ghana. Again, he's Ghanaian. He gets, he gets his doctorate in theology in the Dutch system, goes to Ghana, and he's writing these letters about trying to convert these Africans you know, to Christianity. And he's having debates between African chiefs and himself about the merits of this. So, so right now, you know, I'm working through these 18th century black thinkers and, and sort of the critique about civil society as it's sort of predicated in the biblical system and then the curse of him as, as sort of the, the forefront theory that's given credence in some sense and things like that. So staying for the moment on, on the topic of biblical narratives, I guess my first thought was that you were looking at critiques of these narratives, narratives that you know begin with the Bible and argue that slavery, for example, is natural. 
Um, but what you were just saying seemed to cut against that. So I would love to hear more. Uh, I'm curious, were the 18th century black thinkers you're looking at primarily critiquing narratives that came from the Bible or were they offering new biblical narratives? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, really, the heart of a conversation is what grounds can Europeans assert that they should enslave Africans, right? I mean, that's the heart of the question. So again, so the argument there is that ontologically, black people are not even slaves, right? There's nothing within the Bible, and the Bible, well, up into the 19th century, was important before the development of natural history and history as an aspect of studying human civilization, right? So the Bible gave credence to a worldview of how human races uh -huh. came about, right? So that's what was important. I mean, well, up into the civil I mean, even contemporary critiques, right, in American society yeah. on the Bible, right? What is God's intent for the human race? Yeah. Um, so a lot of these conversations mattered entirely for enslaved people because the Bible yeah. as sort of the origins of the human races in the world was essential to it being critical, but also this idea that, you know, at least well up into the 18th century, right? So some of the stuff that I was looking at is how Black thinkers started to use the Bible as justification to actually kill their slave masters and overthrow the system of slavery, right? Because yeah. the argument there was that to enslave people is a violation against God's law. And who are you as man to treat this to black and intent for the human uh, reality? So a lot of the okay. conversations are really radical in terms of what it meant to say, if God has no edict for us to be enslaved, everything you've created as justification is actually propaganda and falsehood. And therefore, we're going to have a right to reclaim our liberty. Yeah, and I mean, you know, historians have really shown, starting within about the 15th century, there has been, you know, a, a strong tie between Africans on the continent and in Europe in terms of Christianity. So a lot yeah. of this, Congo, the Portuguese, the Spaniards, um, there was an overlap between the way in which Christianity was meshed into African religious practices, right? So it was used in a similar way for war, to create symmetry. So, yeah. You know, a lot of times, most of the conversations that happen on the back end within our contemporary millennium is that, yes, I mean, Christianity was used to enslave Africans, but it's also the test that it was contested. Yeah. I think we move out the other part of this is that every sort of ideology has been contested. It's not a one-to-one quark sort of lying down, right? And so, well, you know, yeah. one of the famous, one of the most interesting um, speeches I read was from a, a guy, a maroon up in Jamaica, who realized his name was Moses, right? And he's talking to these other Maroons and he's about to lead them into rebellion. And he tells them, you know, the irony of my name, Moses, is that Moses was a guy who was used to liberate, you know, his people. And then he's making a similar chart. So he sees messianic symmetry, right? And the Bible, again, was important for black thinkers to also create a comparative history. So we start to see in the early stages in the 18th and 19th century, 17th, black thinkers are creating a comparative history about slavery and why their enslavement is the worst kind. So really, the Bible offered a perspective to say, if we talk about ancient times, the modern world, how do we compare why we've been enslaved? And it seems to be that our form of slavery is the worst kind of slavery that's ever existed. So, so in the context of our conversation in particular, this is the New Narratives podcast, your New Narratives postdoc, uh, I wanted to, to turn to think about how we should think about different narratives. Um, so you've mentioned a couple times that this is offering a, a different account of history, one that presents a distinct narrative, a distinctly black narrative. So I would love to hear about what you take the kind of the project of presenting a distinct or, or new or different narrative to be. Um, you know, should it be thought alongside other narratives presented in that period? Should this narrative take precedent as a story of black people about themselves? 
should it be exclusively taught and discussed? Um, you know, some other option I've not listed off here. How are you thinking about the presentation of these narratives? Yeah, I mean, you know, the larger challenge, you know, and, and this is something that's been consistent since like the 1940s, is that scholarship has really insisted on this idea that Africans coming to the new world either lost the ability to retain African cultural value systems post reconstruction, right? So from the 1940s, you had sociologists and historians constantly making the case that, you know, Africans post the plantation lost civilization, so they're decadent, right? And so that's informed how we even think about historical narratives, that we yeah. don't get students. So the only time black thinkers actually make sense in philosophy is when they're paired up with Eurocentric ideas of philosophies, right? The philosopher Tommy Terry calls this racial, you know, convergence, the way in which Black thinking is constantly read through, you know, the white predominant, at least in European canon. And that's a disservice because Africa, as we know, has always been a cabal of civilization, right? The Greeks come to Africa for all the reasons. And it's just not North Africa. The entirety of the continent has been, you know, at the helm of civilization. So, so the critique here is exactly that, right? Why do we treat Black people as though they need paternalistic systems to understand their worldview when we know consistently that they are human just like any other human race has been here. So the, so the task is then to say, right, what does it look like when we actually wrestle with the fact that Africans came to the new world system, right? So, yeah. um, you know, for example, in my class, my, my graduate class, we had a chance to look at 1521, the first time we have an actual slavery vote that happened in the Dominican, at least at that time period, what becomes something Domingo. Right. And one of the interesting passages in there, and it's really interesting because it's the son of Columbus who's writing, uh, he, was, he was sent here to oversee a plantation. And he writes about these enslaved Africans who are Muslim, who understood enough of December 25th to be the date that they could actually revolt. Right. And so the argument that Columbus is sunny saying is like, look, on the day in which of our savior and was born, these heathens, these Africans use this day to cause revolts. Right. And that should mean something because it means that the understood, even coming into the context of a new world, the, the systems that Europeans had, how different they were from them and how they were able to revolt. So a lot of the project is really an assertion that we've missed this first continuation of African knowledge systems back to the new world, right? We've constantly folded them under European, um, Eurocentric notions when it's really the case that coming to the new world, these systems are important for revolution, revolt, philosophical systems that emerge. I had the thought while you were saying this that there are, like, I guess, two different kinds of revolution. Um, one being, you know, something like practical revolution, bringing about a change in material circumstances, and the other being something, I guess, more like theoretical or intellectual revolution, bringing about a change in the way we think, ways we study or knowledge. Um, obviously, these are not you know, incommensurate, um, but I'm curious about whether, first of all, you agree with me about these kind of two distinct kinds, uh, and then whether you focus more on one or the other, or if you just do view them as kind of co-traveling or, or working in tandem? Yeah, no, that's a great question. And I mean, it's both, right? Because, you know, the revolutionary ask that Africans brought into the new world is that they wrapped the notion that slavery was something that was just germane to the context of a human condition. Yeah. It's, it's the first time in the modern world we have writing from a concerted people about this experience of slavery that we can actually read which is really fascinating because we have to rethink the category then of the slave, which is what yeah. Africans were doing. They're really pushed hard on watching the system and its construction. So that, again, like I was saying, right, they knew enough to read Greek history, Roman history, Egyptian history, to compare the modern republics 
And they were also foreshadowing so many of the concerns that we let on have today, right, about the constitution of a society. So it's really this reorientation about the way in which we think about the human condition itself that we haven't taken seriously, right? So in a lot of ways, you can almost argue that the slave narratives are a critique against humanism as it's emerging in the new world, right? So for all the fallibilities of what humanism means, it's a reconstruction of even what the humanities then are if we take seriously how these people wrap to these categories of the slaves as they emerge from the uh, plantation system in the modern context. Uh, you presented a really important point that, that there were thinkers, philosophers, authors within the early modern period, the 19th century, who were presenting alternative and, and more expansive or inclusive accounts of what it means to be a person or human being than the accounts we often get presented with. Um, so it's, 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 you know, it's out of more than just ignorance in the time period that concepts like person or human are so limited. So one kind of consequence of the figures you're looking at is that concepts take on new meaning and new import. Uh, I'm curious, too, if there are also differences in, in knowledge transmission that you're looking at, oh, yeah. different mediums or, or different ideas of what it means to present something philosophically. Yeah, you know, so uh, so one of the chapters I'm working on, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to disrupt the systems, right? So, like, you know, we famously use Hegel's, like, slave narrative or, like, the master-slave dialectic to be this point of recognition. So I've been lately interested in reading slave letters to their former slave masters, right? And you see that come from them, conversations, right? Um, you know, somebody like Douglas, for example, is famous for sending a letter each year uh, on the eve or at least the anniversary of him running away from his slave master. And he would always write to him on the day to, remem- to remind him about the injustice, right? So and most recently, you know, I just read a letter from James Pennington, a famous slave, uh, former slave man who was a preacher. Um, his memoir was like the fugitive blacksmith, right? And at the ending of his narrative, he has a letter to his family, but also a letter to his slave master, right? And he's reminding him about why he did what he did and he's chastising him. And he's reminding him is that, you know, you're on your deathbed, right? Like, are you prepared for what the afterlife has for you, right? So those are different conversations because even in this conversation, it's not the recognition I need from you, right? But it's the atonement. Because now you have to face God, right? How do you face God after enslaving people? What does the the world look like. So so those are the things I'm interested in, right? Like this is not just a Hegelian conversation about recognition and fight against the oppressor, but we see that black thinkers are even appealing to the concept of an other world, right? What happens when a slave master goes to heaven or hell? Like one of one of the first there's a funny quip from a slave from a slave guy who says, you know, if my slave master is in heaven, I want to be in hell. Right, like, you know, so even there, right, you have these critiques about is there a heaven for a slave and a slave master, what do we have to then conceive of when we talk about otherworldliness and forgiveness, but also death and how then one is culpable and punished for having enslaved other people. Okay, so I can ask questions about your research for hours. Uh, I do want to get into some discussion about teaching and mentorship. Um, but before we move on, if you'll indulge me with, with one kind of particular question I had about your research. Um, when I was reading your work prepping for this interview, the term narrowside kept coming up. You say often that you work on black narrowside. Yeah. Um, I couldn't quite get clear on what narrowside is. I would love if you wouldn't mind just explaining the concept to me a little bit. Oh man, yeah, so I appreciate that. Yeah, so that was the title of my dissertation. Yeah, you know, something I'm conceiving because somebody else just read my dissertation and they were like, yo, I like this concept of narrowside. Um, and I really got the term from Richard Delgado, a critical race theorist, 
who wrote an uh, essay about Derek Bell's possible last uh, essay. And Derek Bell, obviously, is the progenitor of critical race theory. And uh, Delgado in there writes about Maricide, about this breaking of the law as of violence, right? This rapturing. So he says, you know, Bell's writing is a very much in, in terms of a Maricide. So I like that term enough, and I emailed Delgado and was like, I love this term, can I use it? And he said, yeah, sure, go ahead. Um, so I really was saying that when we conceive of what I'm saying in terms of the slave narrative, that they wrapped your violent in the systems that we've come to take for granted, right? Like the morality under the slave ethics, this idea of property rights, right? Like there's a whole different conception that is a violent rapture, or at least in terms of the question you asked me, the revolution is both a praxis but also thought, right? So that is the stance I take with the slave narratives, is that they are rapturing violently with categories we hold to be true, right? And the asking to conceive of a new world by doing this practice, both in their writing, but also in their fighting for freedom. So narrative is a violent rapturing both at the practice of the material world, but also the way we're using things. Okay, that, that actually worked a lot better as a transition than I had anticipated. Uh, right, so narrative should be understood as kind of the rupturing or dismantling of narratives. Um, I would be grateful if you could talk about how you integrate this way of thinking and this way of doing research into your teaching. Um, I say grateful because this is something I think about a lot. I think it's one thing, you know, to take our kind of existing or traditional Eurocentric canon and add to it, either introduce new figures or identify kind of new conversations within that framework, you know, make it bigger by making it more expansive. Uh, right? I, I take this to be a great project, but I think it can, it can feel more exciting, but also maybe a lot more difficult to say that we're you know, throwing most of that out the window to give you something completely different. So like I said, I, I would love to hear how you go about teaching your research and how you have found the students react to it. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I mean, so, you know, I was writing my dissertation as I was exploring this concept of narrative, and I mean, the students were really encouraging to really help me travel the, down this trajectory, right? And so, um, you know, so one of the things, for example, that I've tried to show students and even in my writing is like, you know, for example, some of the first critiques about slavery come from African kings, right? So we'll look at how African kings are writing letters to kings in Europe, but they're using specific language around crime, right? So before we all become comfortable with the term crimes against humanity, here are African kings and Africans coming to the modern world conceiving of slavery as a crime, right? So I then ask students to think, what does it mean to say that since say, the 15th century, right, they have been crimes against African peoples. So the concepts that we hold in ethics, the concept we hold in the law economic system for black thinkers, the Western world is a, a place in which there's a, there's a social construction of crime, right? So it's not even a racial contract, again, an old to the great Charles Mills, the great Charles Mills. But what happens here when you actually enter into a system where crimes are only present against you? How does one rectify your liberty in being in the world, right? So for my students this semester, I asked them a similar question and say, who holds the state accountable for crimes committed against black people, right? So even as you're all championing Black Lives Matter, here's a genealogy since the 15th century or 16th century, and black thinkers have been saying, like, to live in the Western context is to constantly face the crimes that are always present against you. How then does one rectify living in societies where crimes are part and parcel of democracy and even how we socialize people to be in the world? So those categories require a different thinking, right? Because crime then is not just about passion, but it's very structural. That's at the very heart of a governance system are crimes committed against the people that will become complicit and okay with as an organized society. It, yeah, it sounds like, you know, and this is something I hear pretty pretty consistently in doing these interviews, 
that as you start to introduce different narratives, the material becomes all the more relevant to students' lives. You know, it becomes something that they can they can kind of connect to. Um, does that seem right? To, that your students can clearly latch on to the important and continued import of these questions? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, I was amazed with my students. I mean, sort of, you know, I've, I've been sort of since grad school, I've been exploring this concept of a black philosophy of law. Um, so I got to teach it this semester as an assistant professor, right? So it was really, I was really nervous because I was like, I don't know, you know, as a grad student, it's one thing they think you're doing something innovative. It's another yeah. thing. <laughs> I was an assistant yeah. professor, you have to back up your claims. But yeah, I mean, the students were, were so on, right? Like they, yeah. they helped me to see that, you know, it's not just something that was written by these black thinkers, but they were actually exploring these issues. So one of the things that I did is I find social justice papers, which I asked them to take the concepts from the class and find real world examples and then create a philosophical critique, right? And it was amazing to see so many things that came up. You know, we, we were looking at crimes of omission by the state and how the state has continuously created these notions. And so even just that notion of introducing new vocabulary for them, but then also giving them a genealogy, right? They can quote, I don't know, a 17 black thinker and Angela Davis to show you why you know, when you talk about the legal system from a black perspective, it's always been about crime. And they're actually doing this by showing, like, you know, the way they can analyze world events, current events. So, so from that vantage point, it's, it's, it's gratifying when one is bringing in the tradition that has not been given its full credence and students latch on real quickly and help them understand race relations. You've written so eloquently, um, you know, as we began with, about the role of mentorship in your philosophy and in your philosophical career. But especially in this context, uh, now that you're an assistant professor with students of your own and finding yourself, you know, more and more in the role of mentor, as opposed to mentee, I'd love to get you to reflect a bit on the significance of mentorship in your career. Yeah, so it's funny enough, I mean, I just got a call, one of my mentees is, is in law school right now and he's wrestling with like critical race theory and stuff. So he's just calling because I read his paper and he's like, I want to talk about this. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's helped to be taught in true. You know, just yesterday, one of my other mentees was getting a PhD in sociology from the University of Alabama. So it was good to be able to sit and, and, and converse. But I think what's taught in true is that, you know, I think it's a constant learning, right? I think one of the privileges of being a professor is that you're open to learning from different capacities, right? Whether it's revealing the big figures and people who are going to be those thinkers, right? Um, but again, I, I think a larger part for me is also about the continuity about learning from new and upcoming people and what it then does to push me in your own practice, right? Is that, that that openness becomes important. So I appreciate having mentees, right? And, and also I'm trying to protect my research hours and time, right? Because you <laughs> get so engrossed in the new ideas and how fascinating they are. But it, but it's always an exciting experience to be able to learn from other people. And it's humbling, right? Because it requires that one emphasis a lot of humility in these relationships and actually see people for who they are beyond sort of just wanting them to be an identity based in their job. It's really also about connecting to somebody. You mentioned just now, just in passing, kind of a range of different fields. Um, you have a mentee in law school and, you know, one pursuing a sociology PhD. Do you find that your work crosses what we might call you know, disciplinary lines? Um, obviously, your mentoring work, but your philosophy as well? Um, you know, and if so, how and, and how do you integrate these different fields into your research? And depending on your answer, I might have, you know, like a, a big question for you here, but, but let's start with that. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, you know, I, I think one of the best things about the Black tradition is that Black thinkers were always interdisciplinary before it was cool and sexy to do that, right? So 
when you read 19th century thinkers, you know, like, so right now, right, like, I'm reading a theologian. I don't have a theology degree, right? But it's forcing me to think about, wow, I mean, here is a guy using the Bible to critique the American Constitution, right? And when you look into his background, he's autodidactic. He taught himself logic, right? He taught himself history, and he's reading the Greek Bible, and he's making these large critiques about American slavery. So for me, part of that tradition then requires that I have to be more expansive than one discipline, right? And I think sometimes this is sort of the critique against philosophers is that we are so narrow-minded by constantly reading the disciplines on terms when, you know, even if in the 19th century, you can think about Kant and everybody else were writing more than just philosophical texts, right? They were grappling with moral problems, right? And so I think to me, the best of a philosopher is that the discipline allows you to have tools that help you to search for knowledge, right? And so that like, that's why it matters to me really to be interdisciplinary with compassion because it's, it's interesting to see how the thinkers are thinking about a problem and how one can learn from different thinkers of engaging with that. So, so yeah, so purposely, right, I'm also then intrigued to having conversations with mentees in different disciplines because it helps push my own understanding about a particular phenomenon I'm trying to think and study. Yeah. So, I also do want to ask you about these tools and research strategies, but if I can, before we get to that, the, the big question I had is this. So you do your work thinking, I think rightly, that we should expand our scope uh, and think about the way that philosophy kind of interacts with other disciplines, but also, of course, just how a broad range of writings can inform what we take to be philosophical concepts. In that case, though, what, what do you see as involved in the philosophy specifically as opposed to you know, theology or sociology? You know, where do you draw the boundaries and, and what makes you want to call what you work on black philosophy as opposed to, for example, black theology? Yeah. You know, so this yeah. Is a big question. I know. <laughs> what is philosophy? Um, but <laughs> but just yeah. curious, you know, any sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, I mean, so I, and I, I and I somebody brought this to my attention through a question they asked me at the APA recently in Vancouver. And I realized that, you know, Part of my background is that I have a training in my undergrad in anthropology, right now I was doing cultural anthropology. So in that capacity, philosophy is only one system for how a group thinks about their cultural norms and existence, right? But that is also in tandem with other things together. So for me, philosophy is also about the cultural expressions of a people, which is why I don't think for me there's a distinction, quite, you know, proper distinction because any, anything could be philosophical at any moment, right? And I think the easiest and ask for me is about the knowledge that used to then criticize or create what becomes a philosophical expression. So I think a lot of what I try to do in my work is about these cultural expressions that are then called philosophical or, or legal, right? But it's that, yeah, at any basis, this is a cultural group aspect of thinking and positing about something. So, so really, I mean, I think what's the key motive when I do research is I'm always trying to find motifs, right? And then those motifs will then have an aspect that has an intonation of, okay, that sounds philosophical because it's asking the big questions, right? Why, you know, I, this question, right? Like, I mean, two used to say this, right? I wonder if heaven has a ghetto. I mean, that's such a radical concept, right? What happens to you as you die as a black person? Do you go to heaven or even in heaven, are you still segregated? I mean, yeah. that's such a philosophical question, but it's something that's present in black literature in the slave now is the same conversation and critiques about did God intend for black people to be enslaved, right? So that requires both a cultural, historical, uh, philosophical, and theological reading. So so for me, it's really these motifs that emerge from a, a group's response to the environment as they're trying to impinge 
their own liberty onto the world that I think motivates my research. That was a fantastic answer. Yeah, thank you. Okay, so you say you seek out these motifs and go from there. Uh, any other research strategies you employ or tools, tricks you recommend? Any advice for someone looking to get started on this kind of work? Yeah, you know, so one of my so one of my mentors, Julius Bailey, was always good about this, right? You know, he would always tell me, for example, before you read any thinker's work, read their autobiography or biography of a thinker, right? So, um, and that allows you, right, because, you know, one of the key things I think I try to show students or even in my own research is I, we're all creatures of habit, right? And so when I study a thinker, I'm constantly trying to find one theme that the constantly keeps coming back to, right? So. For my students, that may mean saying something like, before you actually even read a thinker, look at the footnotes and find the most cited person. Like, I guarantee you, we all have either one or two people's work that we love and come back to consistently, right? So read that person's work before you read this thinker and see what the claims are. Come back to that other thinker and see the conversation, right? So a quick example would be say something like, a contemporary moment right now is really going strong with this notion of abolitionist, right? We all want to be abolitionists. That term more recently was introduced by Angela Davis as abolition democracy, right? And in the text, she's wrestling with Du Bois and Douglas because Douglas is somebody who is writing about abolition things and he's an abolitionist, right? The same way when Du Bois writes about Douglas and black abolitionists in black reconstruction, he comes up with the term abolitionist democracy about the system of abolishing slavery. Angela Davis uses a concept in modern context to talk about abolition of prison. So there's a genealogy right there, right? That even before we all want to identify as abolitionists, what happens when you go back to read abolitionists in their time, the ways in which they're wrestling with abolishing slavery, the conversations being had there, and then how the boys employs the concept in black reconstruction, and then Angela Davis as it's being used in a modern context. Right. So those are the things that I'm interested in is how, right, how do thinkers internalize other thinkers' work, but also then wrestling with their own aspects and, and ways to put it. So, so really, again, right, it goes back to motifs, right? I mean, a, a pressing thing about my research is that in any thinker's work, uh, or as I'm researching a group of intellectuals, I'm really always trying to find the motifs that are salient in their ways of thinking. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and it goes right back to the point you started with, right? Like the advice Julius Bailey gave you to start by reading the autobiography the thought that as researchers i guess in particular as philosophers that we should begin with the person as opposed to just their ideas i think can can feel foreign or at least you know it's i was taught almost the opposite you start with the ideas above all else and then you kind of see what follows so i think it's really it's really nice to think about the value of not only thinking about the person but also you know what they cared about and and what their interests were Okay, so so last question, uh, pretty quick fire. I would just love to get some resources for learning more about historical black writings. What books would you recommend that I or, or an interested listener pick up? Yeah, you know, so there are really some nice anthologies that have been put forward. Um, Dorothy Porter has an interesting anthology in early black writing. She's chronicle. She's one of the first people um, to chronicle this, at least in the modern context. Um, Carter G. Whitson also has a bunch of texts. You know, one of his most underrated text is the Negro Orators and the Orientation, which is really a compilation of black speeches from the age of slavery down to reconstruction. So that's really good. I recently got my hands on Philip Fauna's uh, Lift Every Voice, African American Orientation from 1787 to 1900. Right? So there's been a lot of work being done by historians around compilations of speeches 
and this again goes back to your question, right? Like, you know, as slave narratives are really being developed, you see speech is being important, letters being important. Um, one of my favorite thinkers to read on this is Elizabeth McHenry. She's really written an important text about reclaiming the value for literary societies and the importance in excavating a black uh, literary society and then the, the work that comes from it. And I think she just has a recent text that came out about the making of African-American literature. Um, so Elizabeth McHenry's work has really been good. Um, and more recently, I'm, I'm reading the anthologies, right? So Angela Davis, um, Angela Davis's work in grad was okay for me. Um, but in terms of methodological studies, uh, Zora Neale Hurston's done some interesting stuff. She's just published her collected works, and obviously she was also good in terms of studying post-life and slavery. Um, Toni Morrison has also done some interesting methodological approaches to how she used uh, the experience of enslaved people into the, you know, the formation of literature. So, um, so methodologically, there's some interesting stuff. Historians too. I mean, him, I could go on and on. You know, there's some historians. Uh, him and Bennett has done some interesting stuff about Afro-Mexicans that's really been important, making waves. Um, and then, you know, certainly last but not least, the Afrocentric thinkers of the 1980s were really, really instrumental to a lot of this. John Henry Clark, a lot of the Pan-Africanist thinkers, um, it's actually interesting to see so much of our contemporary scholarship really, you know, making a case that they're doing innovative work. And it's like, no, I mean, this has been going on. And more recently, in the 1980s, like the school of Afrocentric thinkers were really, really hammering home these points that are then now being so salient even our time. But again, yeah. it just goes to show, right, like black thinkers have been on this for a long time. And I would be remiss if I didn't say, right, like, the school of Afrocentric thinkers in the 1980s um, were really instrumental and have been in my own work as well as I'm trying to reclaim some of these narratives. Thank you so much, Delizzo. It, it was a real pleasure getting to speak to you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I just appreciate the conversation. Thank you for listening to New Voices. Production of the podcast is funded by the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada as part of the Extending New Narratives in the History of Philosophy Project. The music you hear is 17th century female composer Elizabeth Claude Jaquette de la Guerre's Sonata No. 2 in D major, performed on the violin by Bizzaria Armenici. For more information about the project and for future episodes, please visit our website, newnarrativesinphilosophy.net. New Voices is a continuation of the New Narratives in the History of Philosophy podcast. You can also find past episodes under that name in all the same places. We look forward to discussing all these new figures and ideas with you.